you read the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, what you'll find is that Jesus speaks in parables a lot. Whenever he's in a public setting, he speaks in parables to um, communicate his message. And Mark chapter 4 is no exception to that. He's speaking to a large crowd of people, and he is speaking the parable of the silver and the soils. And we all know that parable. There are four kinds of soil. There is a sower, there is seed, there are birds. Um, Jesus is talking about who a believer is and who a believer is not. We're not going to look at the parable itself. What we're going to look at is what takes place after that. The parable goes in uh, verses 1 through 8 and uh, verse 9, I guess. And then what we want to focus on here is verses 10, 11, and 12. And what this is going to relate to is our prayer life and content in our prayer life. So he speaks the parable, starting in verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. This parable is about the sower and the soils. um, But what we see in verses 10 through 12 is we see two things taking place at, at the same time. We see God's mercy on one hand, and we see God's justice on the other hand. We see his mercy in the fact that to a group of people, as in verse 11, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God is that Christ came to this earth, he was incarnate in this world, and he took on human flesh so that he could go to a cross and bear within himself the vengeance and the anger and the wrath that God has against everybody who would believe that they need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. And it's good for us to remember that Jesus is speaking here. He says, to you has been given this mystery. So he's saying this to a group of people. And who is that group of people? It's his followers along with the 12. So there's the 12 disciples, and there's a group of others who are following with him. So those are the people that have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But then there are those who are outside. And these are not people on the other side of the world. These are people who are also hearing these parables. Those who are outside get everything in parables. So that while they are seeing, they're they're seeing the miracles. While they're hearing, they're hearing these parables. They hear and do not understand. They see and do not perceive. There you see God's justice in place. So the way that relates to us is when you're sitting there in the morning and you've got your Bible open, you're getting ready to close your eyes and you're thinking, okay, what do I pray about? How do I start this relationship with the Lord this morning? How do I get this going? Sometimes it's very helpful to remember God's kindness to you, his mercy to you, to enable you to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. That is who Christ is and what his role is in light of God being an avenging just God and I can tell you that it does a lot for your intimacy with the Lord to express gratitude and thanks to him for revealing that to you for revealing that to me when I sit there and I remind myself were it not for God's kindness to me 
I would hear all of these things, and I would, I would not understand. I would see these things, and I would not perceive. And that was true in my own life. I was born into a missionary family. My parents were missionaries in Africa, and I was born in Nigeria. And uh, there was Christianity all around me. Not everybody around me was a believer, but Christianity was all around me, and Christian witness was all around me. Christian testimony was all around me. And I saw it, and I saw it for 16 years. And I, I didn't perceive it, I didn't understand it. And uh, in his kindness, God related that to me and gave me the understanding that I have. So gratitude, thankfulness to God is, is a very good thing to grow your prayer life. If you're thinking about your prayer life and how to get your prayer life stoked up and how to grow your prayer life and its affection for the Lord, think about his kindness to you that he would reveal to you the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And he would not leave you in the condition that you were born in, um, seeing and not perceiving, hearing everything and not understanding. So. All right, that's the message we're going to do now is we're going to break up into our discussion groups. Father, thank you again for our time to gather together. I praise you and thank you for the discussion groups and the discussion leaders. Thank you for the opportunity that they had to talk about elder leadership and elder qualifications. Lord, I pray now as we turn our attention to the deacon qualifications that you would help us here. Lord, what we have in front of us is your divine revelation to us. Lord, because we are created people, we need help in addressing your word. Lord, you are more than sufficient for us. You have given us your Holy Spirit. So I pray that your spirit would indwell each one of us so that as we handle your word, as we listen to your word, as we observe your word, you would inform us with truth. You would inform us with your heart for the church. You would grow us. Pray for each one of these men, Lord, that you would assist them and you would help them in their thoughts, Lord, that they would be on your word. And pray that you would get me out of the way and you would be the one who speaks here today. Lord, all of this again so that your church might be a strong local church. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, um, you don't have to look very far, but if you look at any sampling of churches in this part of town or in the valley as a whole or across the country, you will see that there are a variety of church leadership structures. You can find churches that have the senior pastor model where there's one guy at the top and then there's several different layers underneath him. Uh, you can find churches that have associate pastors. You can find churches that have ruling elders. You can find churches that have teaching elders. You can find churches that have deacons that are men. You can find churches that have deacons that are women. You can find a lot of things. Um, it's safe to say, it's fair to say, that our church does not, the church on a global sense or on a broad sense, does not accurately capture God's design for the deacons and what a deacon is and how a deacon is to serve in, this, in, the, in their local church. And so a properly qualified, a properly functioning deacon is essential to the advancement of the gospel in the local church. So what we want to do today is we want to take a look at what God's word says for us on what um, deacon qualifications are. This is not simply a, a message about the qualifications themselves. It's a message about God's design for the church. And so before we turn to our passage in 1 Timothy 3, let's do this. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. 
we're going to see something that's really important here. And what we're going to see here is that the entire church is advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. It's advancing the mission of Christ. So Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. This is one of his prison letters. He's writing this from prison. And he writes in Philippians chapter 1. And let's take a look at who the recipients of this letter are, okay? To all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the, elders, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering your prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Who is the you? Who is the your that is being spoken of there in verse 3? It's three groups of people that you see spelled out for us in verse 1. It's the saints who are in Christ Jesus. That's the complete body of believers in the church in Philippi. It's the overseers, the pastors, the elders. That's the second group of people. And the third group of people are the deacons. So when Paul is writing to a church and he's describing the, the body of believers in that church... He calls them all saints. And he identifies a subset of those people as overseers in the NAS. It's also elder. It's the same word as elder. It's the same word as pastor. And there's a third group of people that are the deacons. And so what we want to understand is that all of these three groups of people, as you look at verse 3, are participating in the gospel mission. All of them are actively involved in it and what was happening there is that the church is growing and the church is prospering. So we all know where elders sit from Scott's message last week. You have a group of elders and a group of men who's overseeing the church. And you have the church, a group of saints as a whole that, that sit underneath those elders. And what we have here when we see deacons, and this is important to understand, is that deacons are a layer of servant leadership that sit between the elders and the church. They're men that are appointed by the elders. They're men that are put in their positions by the elders to serve in specific <laughs> ministry needs. And the reason why they're put there is so that the church is more efficient in advancing the gospel. Okay. So it's very easy to look at the, the list of things that you see here, and it's very easy to look at uh, a deacon and say, well, it's a task. We have deacons here over several different areas in our church. I think there's about nine areas. We have deacons over the facility. We have we had a deacon over the purchase of a facility and the helping of finding a facility. We have deacons over Next Generation Ministries. We have deacons over small groups. We have deacons over benevolence. We have deacons over lots of things in this church. But the purpose for all of those deacon roles is to advance the gospel mission. That's the overriding purpose for them all. So we want to understand that and we want to view deacons in that light. So let's go back to 1 Timothy 3 and let's take a look at what those deacon qualifications are. These are the verses that follow the passage we looked at last week, last time that Scott taught on. We're going to start in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3 and we're going to read through verse 13. And notice very carefully that tucked in the middle there is a discussion of women. So we're going to get to that at the end of our message, but just set in your mind that we've got this discussion about deacons and how they need to be a certain kind of man, and there's a verse that addresses women. So we'll get to that, okay? 
Let's read. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and all their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence is in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's look in the middle of this in verse 10. We're going to get to point two here. Deacons, and we're going to look at the importance of men who are tested and approved in their character. What we have here is a description of deacons that is quite lengthy. Let's think back before we start to the deacons that were prototype deacons in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the church is just starting. Um, it has apostles, people coming to Christ daily. The church is growing. People in Jerusalem know that there is this new group of people that are not associated with the Pharisees. They're not associated with the temple. They're not associated with the current religious leadership that was in place. This is a group that is growing, that, are, that is expanding. It's a healthy group. It's a group that's characterized by people who come together. They bring their stuff. They bring their, their possessions, and they provide to one another for all of those who have needs. And the church is functioning really, really well. And what is really significant about the church as it was starting in, in the, the New Testament time is that you had the combination of the Jew and the Gentile. And that's part of the mystery of the gospel is that God brings together the Jew and the Gentile into one new man, and they lived together. But that created a problem because there were some Jews who had become very enculturated in the, the Greek culture. And those people were called Hellenistic Jews. And there were widows in that group of people. They were Jews who, because of the Greek influence around them, were very Greek in their, in their manner. They were very Gentile in, in their, their living. And yet they were believers, and they were widows. And as the, the food and everything was getting gathered together and brought together by mostly Jews, there was a group of people that was getting overlooked in the distribution of that food, and that was the Greek women, or the, the Jewish women who had adopted the Greek culture. Uh, the Jews who had not adopted the Greek culture were not as quick and not as easy as to distribute the food to the, the Hellenistic Jewish widows. And so what happened was the disciples, the apostles came together and they made a decision in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. They needed to address this, and they realized that they didn't have the bandwidth, they didn't have the cycles, it wasn't right for them to be addressing this. So they said, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men, and this is the qualification for them in Acts chapter 6, of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Whom we, may, whom we may put in charge of this task. So the apostles get together and they say, we need to find men who meet three criteria. They need to be men who are of good reputation. They're men who are wise and full of the Spirit. That's a short list. And so we look at that, and then we look at the list that we've got here in Philippians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3 that he's writing from Philippians. Um, and he says, this much longer list, We've got this really long list in 1 Timothy 3. We've got this very short list in the prototype deacons 
in Acts chapter 6. And it's really good for us to understand that Acts chapter 6 was occurring about 20 to 25 years before <coughs> Paul was writing to Timothy, and he was writing in um, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So there was about 25 years space between them. One was right at the start of the church, then Paul writes to Timothy. After the church has expanded, he's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. And so you ask yourself, why is there a, a shorter list at the beginning in Acts chapter 6, and there's a longer list in 1 Timothy 3? And the short answer is that it's describing the same kind of man. The same man who is a man of good reputation and full of the Spirit and full of wisdom in Acts chapter 6. The guy who's that kind of man is the man who fits the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. So it's the same kind of man. But there's one significant difference here. As you look at, at Acts chapter 6, there's not an emphasis on a man being tested and being approved. And so we've been flipping around a little bit here, but we'll jump back to 1 Timothy 3 and we'll, we'll stay there. In verse 10, we see that these men must also be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So if we're going to fill in our blanks here. We want to show that deacons, there's an importance of tested and approved character. So in verse 10, we look at it and we see these men must also first be tested. When you're appointing a man to a deacon role, he's a man who needs to be tested. And then he also needs to be beyond reproach. And those are bookends on his character. So we call it the tested and approved character sandwich. Probably going to change that in, in the years going forward, but he's tested on one end, and he's been observed, and he's approved, and then he's free to serve as a deacon. The word tested is a really interesting word. It's the word that is used in metallurgy. It's used in the coin making in their culture and in their day. And it was a word that was used to describe whether a person was true or he was counterfeit. And it was used to describe whether a coin was true or it was counterfeit. And so the way they did that in their coin making was they would expose a coin to a certain temperature for a certain period of time. So the coin would be tested over the course of temperature and time. That's the idea that they're getting at with the elders, or the, the deacons here, is that these are men who have been observed over a period of time. They've been tested, they've been watched, and they have found to pass the test. They've found to be above reproach. What, what it's not saying here, what is not being said, is that a deacon is a man who becomes qualified on the job. He might learn to function in his role and perform his task, and he might perform his task with increasing skill as the weeks and the months and the years go by. But his character has already been established because he's been evaluated and he's been observed first, and he's found to be above reproach. So then he's free to function in, this, in the role of deacon of the church. So that's the significant difference here, is that the man is being tested, he's being observed, and then he's found to be above reproach. Scott, why do you think they weren't? I mean, do you, are you saying that they weren't tested and approved in the in, in Acts, or are you saying that it just isn't listed there? Okay, so the question was, um, were these men in Acts chapter 6 not observed and approved? One answer to that is probably that there was a very immediate need, and so they selected men who 
were known to be of good reputation. And so the reputation that they brought with them probably spoke to the kind of men that they had been recently. Um, what we have here in 1 Timothy 3 is the establishment of deacons in the church. The, Acts chapter 6 is more of a prototype deacon. This is the function that deacons need to do, but it wasn't really in the context of the church yet. The church was just starting. Here in 1 Timothy 3, the church is, is much more formal. It's in place, and there's a specific role that needs to be made. So there was a sense of approval in the sense of that they had a good reputation, but here it's a little bit more formal in the sense that there's a group of leaders who are going to watch a man for a period of time. So... Scott, the, uh, the observation and the watching that takes place in the task that they're performing, right? Not just the kind of person that they are in general. Uh, it takes place beforehand. It takes place beforehand and continues into their service. Um, because we want to know that in order to be approved, well, let's see, the wording there is... Um, in verse 10, the wording is, these men are to first be tested. So the testing occurs first, and the observation occurs first. Then let them serve if they're found to be beyond reproach. And so the testing will continue um, as they continue to function in the role that will still be observed. But there's a sense in which the elders are going to be looking at the man to see what kind of man he is first. And that, that involves just watching the man and seeing how he interacts with his small group, if he's in the small group, um, how he holds himself in conversations with people, um, what his availability is like, what his marriage is like, how he handles his household, and all of those things. Um, did I answer that in what you were getting at? Yeah. Okay. The, the idea there is that... Uh, that a man's name arises and the elders begin to observe the man. And then they approach him when, when they see more. And at some point there's kind of a transition in which they say, look, we're considering you for a role as, as a deacon. Let's walk together. And then the, the deacon role starts. Okay. Um, the other thing that we want to notice here is that in this list, in the middle of the list here, we have the idea of being found above reproach. And it's right in the middle of the list. Uh, when you read the, the elder qualifications just six or eight verses earlier, the idea of being above reproach is at the beginning of the list. And as Scott described last time, the idea of being above reproach is kind of an umbrella qualification for the elder. And everything else needs to sit underneath of that. And the same thing is true here with deacons. But the one thing we want to do here as deacons is, is um, we want to tie their role and their function as deacons um, to their character. We want to keep their, their idea of their being tested integral to their, their role. And so I think that's part of the reason why Paul puts that in the middle of this list is because there's a testing and there's an evaluation um, that, that takes place um, that we don't want to separate that from the, the character qualifications. And so it's just noteworthy that the, the explanation or the requirement that he be above approach is in the middle of the list rather than at the front of the list. Okay, so a, a well-qualified deacon is one who has who has demonstrated himself over a period of time and he possesses an above reproach character. 
So let's take a look at what these qualifications are. And we'll go through these one at a time and uh, we'll take a look at them. Dignity. Um, if you can remember back in the, the 80s and the 90s, a man of dignity, maybe not in the millennial generation, but a man of dignity in the 80s and 90s was a man who wore really nice clothes and his hair was always in, in the right place. And he spoke with big words and he did lots of things like that. Um, that is not what's being referred to here. What is being referred to here is a man who has a serious bearing in life. He has a serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and a serious character. Again, it's not about his outward appearance. It's not about his choice of vocabulary. It's not about his choice of dress. It's not about the way he appears externally. It's a man who has a serious mind and a serious character. And it's observable. It's very observable. He's not a man who is dull to be around. He's not a man who is dry to be around. He's not a man who is stuffy to be around. Uh, he's very winsome, he's very appealing, um, but he's a man who, when you look at him, you say, I can respect a person like that because he has a very serious mind and his character is it's very serious in all that he does. Um, it's the opposite of being silly and flippant. It's the opposite of being nonchalant. It's the opposite of somebody who always makes light of a situation. It's a man who looks at a situation and his first response is to, to consider the situation seriously. So his words, the character of his words is that they're serious. The character of his actions is that they're serious. His counsel is serious. Um, he's not a man who is continually making light of a situation. Life is not just one big joke to him where he's, he's rolling through life with this, this smile on his face because he's being funny all the time. That kind of man is essential as a deacon because if you have, we have some deacon roles such as the, the deacon role of benevolence, somebody's going to come to you with very significant needs. They're going to come to you with a very significant problem. And the deacon who is one of a serious character and a serious mind is the one who listens very carefully. He understands the problem very well. And he lets the person who comes to him with a need describe the situation. And then it's essential that he asks good questions. And he can't ask good questions if his mind is prone to running to funniness and silliness. He's a sober man. He knows how to ask the right questions to understand what the true need really is. And uh, we are blessed to have our deacon of benevolence be that kind of man. We're very, very thankful for him. He's sitting in this room right now, and I'm very thankful for him. Um, so questions we can ask ourselves as we consider this character quality is, what is the tone of my conversations? When I'm in conversation with somebody, whether it's a, a joyful conversation or it's a casual conversation or we're talking about something that's hard, what is my tone? Is my tone one where I'm listening carefully, I have a serious bearing, or am I prone or am I more inclined to, to try to find a way to respond in a way that's funny or that's light or that's witty? Another question is, can people tell that I think very seriously about the circumstances that the Lord has brought into my life by the way I describe them? I had a conversation this morning with somebody who was describing the situation that God gave them. And this is a serious man. This is a man who was thinking carefully about his circumstance. 
and it was a blessing to see that he was looking at this with uh, a sobriety and, and a wisdom that comes from being a man of serious mind and character. So that's what Paul is getting at when he's telling Timothy, you need to be looking for men of dignity. It's men who have a serious mind and serious character. The next thing he talks about is a man who is not double-tongued. And this is a man who has no apparent discrepancies in his words. No apparent discrepancies in his words. And literally, the word there, dilogos, means two words. And it's a man with two messages. What a, a deacon cannot be is a man who has two messages. Whoever he talks to, at whatever level in the church, everybody gets the same message from him. He has the same words for them. And here's why this is important. We talked about how the deacon role is a role where the deacon sits between the elder leadership and the saints in the body. And the deacon finds himself interacting with both of those layers. And so when he is understanding a situation by talking with someone in the body who has a need or who makes an observation, he needs to have the same language, the same concerns as he's talking with that person that he uses when he comes and informs the elders about that. It's very, very important that the transfer of information is very clear, it's very concise, it's very accurate. We want the elders to understand the situation for what the situation really is. And you can think of any number of situations that arise, whether it's a benevolent need, or it's a counseling need, or it's a, a financial need, or, or whatever the need is. A deacon becomes aware of that need, he understands the need, and then he brings it to the elder leadership. You want your elders to be informed properly about what a situation is. And the only way that can happen is with a deacon who has one message. That is, when he's listening and he's talking to those in the body to understand the situation, he's listening and talking with the same usage and the same words and the same thoughts and the same aims as he uses when he describes it to the elders. A wrongly informed elder board is a, is a really dangerous elder board um, because they're going to make poor decisions. They're going to be shepherding outside of the need. They're going to be providing very poor care to the body. Um, it's going to lead to a, a poorly functioning church and ultimately a poor gospel testimony. So it is essential that we have a deacon who is not double-tongued. So there's some questions we can ask ourselves as we consider that. One of the questions is, does my account of a situation change as my audience changes as I'm describing that? Do I describe a situation one way to my wife and then describe it a different way to my peers when I'm talking about the very same thing? Do I withhold things from one group and not from another in a way that would distort either group's understanding of the situation? Do I have a different standard of accuracy with my wife with my peers. Very important. A good deacon, a faithful deacon, is a man who is equally accurate regardless of who his audience is. And this could include kids. You're talking to kids in this church and they're talking about something that they see and something that they're doing. And it's important that the deacon is one who, who has the same level of accuracy. Just because you're talking to kids doesn't mean you, you, you can fudge or you cannot be complete. There's ways you need to be wise when you describe that. But the deacon needs to be a man who has one message. That's really, really important. The next qualification is that he's not addicted to much wine. 
Scott spent a lot of time talking about this last time, and it's uh, it's a person who who does not have a repeated habitual turning to alcohol and its use. What's in focus here really is a man's thought process. Uh, got a man who's if you have a man whose thoughts and whose judgment are continually influenced either by the use of alcohol or by the task of acquiring alcohol, the task of preparing for alcohol. You have man who is occupied with thoughts that are not consistent, that are not in line with serving a church. He's going to find himself compromised in his decisions. He's going to find himself compromised in the things that are, are most important to him. <coughs> So there's two parts to this. You have the aspect in which a man is addicted to something, and then you have the alcohol itself. And both of these are things which, um, when they're taken together in deacon service, will, will tend to lead a man away from leading the church well. Uh, because his, his judgment is compromised, what's important to him is compromised. His ability to see a situation for what it really is is compromised. So I won't say too much more about that. Scott probably talked at that at reasonable length. But I would encourage you to ask yourself some good questions about alcohol. Have you evaluated your use of alcohol, if you use alcohol, as to when you use it, why you use it, with whom you use it? Uh, have you ever just sat down and, and walked through that and said, this is the way that I will use alcohol. I will use it thankfully. I will use it joyfully. I will use it sparingly. I will use it biblically. Um, and I will use it in these contexts. One question to ask yourself is, do I know how to use alcohol in a God-honoring way? Do I know how to use it thankfully? Do I know how to use it with self-control? Do I know how to use it with joy? Do I know how to use it and demonstrate godly character as I'm using it? The deacon needs to be one who is not fond of sordid gain. And this is really important. Um, this is speaking to loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. It's the gain of wealth in a way that causes your character to be questioned. This is the kind of man who is having thoughts of monetary gain from questionable motive. It's the kind of person who, if his motive for gaining wealth is dishonest, that doesn't bother him. He pursues it anyway. There's nothing wrong with monetary gain. What's, what's wrong here is the motive for monetary gain that, that's dishonest. It's not genuine. There's a warning here against the use of the deacon role for financial gain. All you have to do is, is think back to the situation in Acts chapter 6. The apostles entrust a group of men, first Timothy and then the rest of them, to address the situation. And he's given them, the apostles have given them full charge over everything. And so there's resources at work here. There's food, there's probably money, there's things being exchanged. And what is happening is the body is entrusting these deacons with the management and the distribution of funds and property. Funds and goods, food, whatever it is. Um, when you have a man who is swayed very hard and very strongly 
by the dishonest means of gain, he is going to be the kind of man who will be tempted to use those things that the body has entrusted to him for his own personal gain, when what has been intended all along is the benefit of the body where there is a true need. And so what you have here is a man who is willing to redirect resources, redirect property, redirect material things for his own personal gain. And what that will do if that ever surfaces and arises is it will grow a lack of question. It will grow a lack of question as to the character of the, the deacon himself. And what that will do is it will put the, the character and the, the gospel witness of the church on display. It will ruin it. It will disturb it. It will reduce it. It will reduce the church in its effectiveness with the gospel. If you have people who are entrusted to, to bless the body, who are actually using what was intended to bless the body as a means to bring bring damage to the body. And so he needs to be a man who is free from any sort of thought of dishonest gain. And so questions we want to ask ourselves as we consider that are, am I honest with my wife if I'm married about the use of the money that God's entrusted to us? Do I fudge? few bucks here, a few bucks there. I'm pretty clear with my wife. This is the way I'm handling and managing the things that the Lord has entrusted to us. Today is April 16. I guess it's the day after April 15. And a good way to examine ourselves is when we're filling out all those boxes on our 1040 forms, uh, maybe you have someone else do it for you, and that's good. Um, am I tempted? Do I find myself being swayed? to write a number down that's not the accurate number, that's not the true number? And how do I respond to that temptation? Do I stop and do I pray and do I ask myself, no, um, this is what God designs for a man. This is what God has in mind for a believer in his witness. All right. Then Paul gets on to another issue here. He talks about outward characters. He's talking about the kind of man he is. He talks about his use of alcohol. He talks about his message. He talks about the way that he um, looks at funds and whether he looks at funds honestly. But then he gets to the gospel in verse 9. And it is very important that a deacon has an ever-present grasp on what is believed, which causes the conscience to affirm and not condemn the man or his ministry. So this is talking about a man who is holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. First of all, he understands the mystery of the faith. And the word holding there is present tense. And so it is something that he does habitually. It's something that he does on an ongoing basis. Regularly, consistently, presently, and in going into the future, he has a good grip on the gospel. He has a clear understanding, a firm understanding of the gospel message. He has no questions in his mind as to the role of the Father, the role of the Son, the role of the Holy Spirit. He understands church history. He understands the Old Testament. He understands the New Testament. He understands this well. But the key here is that he does it with a clear conscience. And what that's getting at there is that there is nothing in his lifestyle um, that gives him any way to be convicted over the way he lives that is in any way an affront to the gospel. The way that he lives only affirms the message of the gospel that he has a good grip on. 
So the emphasis here is two parts. One, he truly understands the gospel. And two, he lives in such a way that his conscience does not convict him of that. His conscience affirms what he believes by the way that he lives. This is really important because all of the the deacons within a church are ultimately serving the gospel mission of the church. We talked about at the beginning. It's really important for the deacon to serve the gospel mission of the church. And if he's living in a way in his own home, in his own private life, at a discipline one and a discipline two level um, that compromises the truth of the gospel, he's going to bring that right into discipline three. He's going to bring all of his sin, all of his mess into the church. And the church will suffer from that. So that's what we're getting at there with a clear conscience. The way that he chooses to live affirms what he believes. It doesn't contradict what he believes. What we're going to do now is we're going to jump down to verse 12. Talked about, we want to keep in mind verse 11 that talks about the women. So what we're going to do is jump over that and get to verse 12. It needs to be a husband of one wife. Just like an elder, the message there is that every man in the church who's married needs to be a husband of one wife. Scott probably mentioned this in great length last time, but what is not being said here is that a deacon needs to be a married man. It's not true that what's in place here is a requirement that a man be married in order to serve as a deacon. And likewise, what it's not saying is you just need to be married and then you can be a deacon. All you need to do is wear a ring and you can be a deacon. That's not what's being said here. Again, what's in mind here is the kind of man that's in view. That when a man is married, his affections, his thoughts, his desires, when he thinks about intimacy, when he thinks about companionship, when he thinks about friendship, when he thinks about togetherness, when he thinks about all of those things, he thinks of one person in that conversation in his mind, and that person is his wife. It's not limited to what he thinks about, it's limited to what he speaks about, when he talks about what is pleasurable for him, when he talks about what is affectionate for him and where his affections are, he's talking about one woman, and that's his wife. It's not limited to just his thoughts and his words, but it's also pertaining to his deeds. Where does he find his joy? Where does he find his pleasure? Where does he find his fulfillment? Where does he find his gratification? He finds it in one place. He finds that with his wife. He's not the kind of man who is passing out hugs all over the place to everybody in the church. He's not a man who has a lot of physical contact with other women. He's not a man who finds himself in private conversations with lots of women um, in different places. And this is really, really important because if you're a deacon in the church and you're serving in one role or another, whether it's in Next Generation Ministries or you're a deacon over your small group or any other place, you are going to have conversations with single women in this church. You're going to find yourself in that conversation and you're going to find yourself sometimes uh, somebody wanting to spend some time with you to talk through something, whether they have a need or whether they're aware of something that you need to know about that the church might need to look into or whatever else. You're going to find yourself in conversations with a woman alone. And the deacon, who's a well-qualified deacon, is very, very careful with that. What is in mind at all times is his thoughts about his wife, his relationship with his wife. So he does not put himself in a difficult situation. 
if a single woman or a, a woman who's a single mom or whatever needs to have a conversation with him that's of any substance or of any length, he makes sure that he has that conversation in a very safe place. And that is likely, most likely, most commonly with his wife nearby. If someone comes and says, you know, I, I need to sit and talk with you about a situation that I have. Um, I'm considering a relationship with somebody. This is a good one. I'm considering a relationship with somebody and I need your wisdom. This woman is looking up to you. She sees you as a godly man. She sees all of these things. Um, it is very easy for her to get to a place in her mind and her heart that you don't want to go in your, your heart and your mind. So you're a man who always only has been training yourself to think about your affections, your love, your tenderness, your compassion, your companionship in regards to your wife only. He's a man who's careful to put himself in situations and limit his situations that he'll put himself into. I've never been a deacon at this church. I've only been either a, a member at this church, a saint in this church, or an elder. But I, my policy is I, I don't have a conversation with a woman alone. When I do membership interviews with somebody, like we have Membership Sunday coming up tomorrow, um, if I need to do a membership interview with a single woman, I invite her over to my house, and my wife is either in the house or one of my adult daughters is in the house with me. Um, if someone wants to come over and talk something over, they've got a work problem or something else, same situation. Um, or we'll meet at church here, and my wife will be in the next room over or something like that. Uh, but the, the deacon who is a husband of one wife is exceedingly careful to guard his heart because he doesn't trust his flesh. He knows the message, he understands the gospel, he loves the gospel, but he, he understands what his flesh is capable of doing. So you can ask yourself all the right questions. You can ask yourself the questions that, that relate to how you're guarding your affections, how you're guarding your thoughts for those. When you find your thoughts beginning to take those first few steps towards affections towards somebody else, do you wield them in with scripture? Do you bound them with scripture? Are you reminding yourself of God's design for intimacy? And so forth. A deacon is a good manager of their children in their own household. We've been talking um, about this here, and this is a man who provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. Direct and ongoing oversight. He doesn't wind it up and let it run. He is providing careful, daily, hourly, moment-by-moment -moment oversight of his household affairs. <coughs> the idea here in the Greek is that it's a man who has charge over and stands over. And he has observation of because he's near. He's near to what's happening in his house. He's not managing his household remotely. He's not logging into his house from a remote location. Imagine he's there. When there's shepherding of his wife, he's there to do it. When there's shepherding of his kids, he's there to do it. And this is where when we talk about discipline one and discipline two and discipline three, you see this. This is discipline two. He's providing good D2 shepherding in his home. And then he's going to bring the fruit of that into this church thing there is that if you can't trust, if you can't lead a group of five people, how can you lead a group of 500 people? If you're not a good shepherd of the small thing that God has entrusted to you in terms of number, how will you be a good shepherd over a larger set of people? You're going to bring the fruit of 
whatever your D2 is, into your D3. So what Paul is doing here is he is giving you a proof text for discipline one, then discipline two, and then discipline three. In order to serve in deacon roles in discipline three, you need to be a man whose home, discipline two, is in order. So we ask ourselves good questions about how connected we are to our family. Are we there when there's, when there's opportunities to correct our kids and we're in the house? Are we doing it? Are we taking the lead for that? And I understand how hard that is. I remember when my kids were, were little. I come home from work and I'm dead tired. I've had a long day. And I've got a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. Um, that is where grace kicks in. <laughs> right? um, that is where you need to work together with your wife. Um, but we need to be ready by God's grace to, to do that well. Think carefully about your readiness to be a leader in your home as it relates to training your kids. All right, backing up to verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. At a first glance, you look at that and you say, women, look, here's a description for women deacons. This is a passage about deacons, and we've got a verse, a whole verse dedicated to women here. So obviously... This is a verse that endorses women deacons of the church. What we believe here that this is teaching is that we're not talking about the fact that there are women deacons in the church. We believe what Paul is getting at here is he is referring to the wives of the men who serve as deacons. He's referring to the wives of the men who serve as deacons. That's probably the minority view in evangelical circles today. But there are six things that I want to give to you that help you understand that this is probably referring to wives of deacons, wives of men who are deacons. And the first is the word itself. Um, the word itself um, is just a word for woman. He doesn't use the term that describes leadership of the woman. He just uses the term woman. He doesn't employ specific leadership terminology here as he's describing the woman. He just says woman. The natural meaning of the word woman doesn't need to stretch too much to refer to a wife. But the natural meaning of the word woman has to stretch a lot more to refer to a woman who is serving in the role as deacon when you just consider the word itself. That's the first thing. The second thing is look at the placement of the qualifications. Look at the immediate context. Where does this verse sit? This verse sits in the middle of a description of deacons. And it sits right next to a verse that talks about how the deacon needs to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. It, it would be in direct contrast to the teaching of the verse right around it. If it talks about women who are deacons. Thirdly, as you back out a little bit more, you see that Scripture itself in the New Testament contains no reference to women who are serving as deacons. No other reference whatsoever. And fourthly, the majority of the translations here interpret the word to mean women. Just women themselves. It doesn't use, most translations don't use the word women who serve as deacons. They don't mention deacons at all. It just refers to women. The fifth reason is you think about the context of the same letter. And I probably should have mentioned this earlier in the list. But just 15 verses earlier, 
First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. When you're serving in a deacon role, and you're serving in a, a role as deacon over benevolence or a deacon over finance or deacon over a facility or deacon over anything else, you're going to be in a, in a teaching and an authority role where you're going to be directing people under you. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 2, I don't allow for a woman to be in that position over a man. And the last reason is that ministry needs would suggest it. If you think back to Acts chapter 6, you've got a situation where uh, one group of women is being overlooked in the service of food. If there was ever a place where it would be right to assign women to rule over that task and to organize that task, the task of serving food, that would be it. Right? We need some people who need to be served food. Let's get some ladies on that task and serve that food. That sounds like a task that works well for women. The apostles saw right through that. Instead, what they did was they, they appointed godly men because they knew God's design for the role was that men should be led. Men should be leading others in this. They understood that. So Peter and John and all the rest of the apostles understood that, that God's design for the deacon was that it was a role that was going to be led by men. We're running a little short on time here, so I'll run through this quickly. These women need to be dignified in verse 11. It's the same qualification for the men. Um, the wife of the, the man who is a deacon, she also needs to be dignified. There's nothing flippant about the way she talks. When you talk to the man's wife, you can tell that the man, being married to that man, has had a very sobering effect on her in a good way. That she views life with the same seriousness of mind and character that her husband does. She needs to not be a malicious gossip. Slanderous accusations are not thrown at others. No slanderous accusations being tossed around. Think about why this is important. A lot of times, a deacon is being assisted by his wife in his service. And that's especially true if you're in your deacon role, you find yourself meeting with other women and listening to other women, hearing from other women. It's very good for your wife to be there with you. So your wife is going to hear a lot of what is going on. She's going to hear things that are not necessarily pleasant, not necessarily good. She might be sitting with you as she's, she's listening to a few women describe a problem that they're having of one nature or another. So there's, there's privy information that is being held there. And this needs to be a woman who has a good control over her tongue. She knows how to keep a conversation inside the room that it belongs. And she doesn't let the conversation drift beyond that. Because that would be harmful to the gospel ministry of the church. Okay, she needs to be temperate. Um, she needs to avoid what might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. The same word that's being used for the elders, the wife of the elder needs to be temperate. In other words, the events and activities that take place don't push her towards thinking that is irrational, thinking that is thinking that is responsive to things. She's the kind of woman who thinks clearly and thinks objectively about a situation regardless of the circumstances that place it in. And the way she's become that kind of woman is she's been married to a man who is a temperate man himself. She's been following his lead on what kind of man to be. And finally, she needs to be faithful in all things. 
She's trustworthy in all matters that are entrusted to her, whether it's great or small. So her word carries a weight to it. When she says she'll do something, she does. And she gives you your, your word. She gives you her word. You can believe it. And all of that is, is related to the effectiveness of the gospel as it goes forward. The gospel will be hindered if the deacon's wife is a woman who's not trustworthy. Because the deacon is pre- presenting the gospel message. And if those to whom he's presenting the gospel message see that it's not in place in his own home, they would question that message themselves. Okay, finally in verse 13, um, we talk about the deacon who has a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is relating to the person who has served well. When a man has served well, he does obtain for himself a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ. He's a man who is, and here's where we fill in our blanks, he is highly respected and he is an emboldened servant in the mission. Highly respected emboldened service servant in the mission the word high standing there describes a platform that a man has and it's not the man himself who is venerated but it's the kind of character that is looked up to in a man that as the body sees him and they've seen him serve faithfully for a long time they look and they see that is a man whose character is the kind of character to be admired And he has great confidence in the faith. He has a boldness that comes from the assurance of his salvation. His faith is proving out what he believes and what he is. His service proves out the kind of person that he is. So those are the kind of men that we want to be deacons. That's the kind of man who God has designed to to be useful to the church. And the one thing I want to leave you guys with in all of this is that all of this is about the gospel mission of the church. We have deacons that serve in many different capacities. They serve young people all the way up to the oldest people in this church. And all of it relates to the readiness to advance the gospel mission of the church. So I hope that's helpful for you guys as you think about deacon service in the church. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their willingness to sit here for two hours this morning. Thank you for the fellowship that has taken place. Thank you this morning for your design for deacon leadership in this church and in your church. Lord, we're reminded that the church is yours. Your son Jesus is the head of it. And I thank you that you have been careful and you've been thoughtful for the way in which you intend the roles in this church to be functioning. Lord, I do pray for the deacons who serve in this church. Lord, these are quiet men. They're men who don't draw attention to themselves. But they serve very faithfully. They serve very silently. Lord, they serve very invisibly in many ways. I pray for them today. I pray for their marriages. I pray for their jobs. I pray for all the other things that they do. Lord, that they would be men who continue to serve this church and advance the gospel mission. I pray for my friends here this morning, Lord, that they would enjoy their weekend. They would enjoy their households. Lord God, that you would lead them well to lead their families and their homes well. Thank you again for your gospel, Lord, that you gave to us that we would believe it, and in believing, we would have eternal life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.